Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Lies are comfortable. We lie to soothe feelings, to make agendas appealing, to sell things. We find lies so attractive that we bend our terminology to accommodate them. Instead of analyzing information, we discuss narratives. Instead of taking responsibility for our actions and their outcomes, we rush to share our stories and our vision. The visionary, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, lies to himself, the liar only to others. How is it then that we, a society made up of personal narratives and visionary thinkers, are surprised when the newest politician lies about almost everything. The crisis is not moral. It begins with a false premise accepted long ago that a person can extract meaning from a text. We adopt the fantasy that we understand a text or any complex data set without knowing the actual content of the text. What we then call meaning is almost always the lie we tell ourselves to fill in the blank spaces left over by the work we've not done. This is the actual definition of the infamous personal narrative. To understand Luke's meaning, we must force ourselves to strip away the lies of translation, cultural bias, and centuries of third-party narratives and visions imposed on the biblical text to finally hear the meaning grammatically embedded in the connective tissue of Luke itself. So much ado about the word firstborn in the many theologies of English speakers, and it doesn't even appear in Luke chapter 2. Verse 23. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 463 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Years ago, I remember having a discussion with a colleague about the question of meaning and the scriptural text. My friend was making the argument that there is no such thing as meaning. All you have is the text. At the time, this was early in my journey as a student of the biblical school, at the time, I was only beginning to understand this most critical point about grammar and functionality, that once you try to assign meaning, 
not just to a word, but to a text or to a story. You know, Rich, how Father Paul makes fun of people for trying to get the gist or the cream (laughs) of the story or the summation. Once you try to extract something from the words, you're already creating something else. You have to deal only with what is written. And then, of course, we've labored at length on this program discussing how translation itself is interpretation. Because even if a word in translation, in principle, carries the same, quote, meaning, it's already dislocated, it's dislodged, it's disconnected from a system of words, just by virtue of the fact that it no longer has the same root, the same potentially the same sound, it no longer has the same connective tissue to the broader organism of the original text in the original language. All these discussions that we keep having over and over again about finally doing an authoritative translation are vain talk and wasted dollars and wasted brain cells. There is no authoritative translation. There is no value in doing another translation. It's a lost cause and it is a lost effort. All of those intelligent people, men and women, with a background in languages, every last one of them should stop what they're doing and rededicate themselves to teaching the original languages and to teaching scripture in the original languages. That's the real hope, because you simply can't translate. And there's one beautiful example of this that Father Paul touched on recently on his Tuesday session here on the Bible as Literature podcast, And that, of course, Richard, is this expression which can't be rendered in English in translation in any way, shape, or form that integrates with the original Hebrew, or in this case, the Greek, and that is the opener of the womb. Peter is a word that's fairly specific when it's talking about a firstborn child, but it's the opener of the womb. We have it in Greek where it's translated directly as opening the womb in two different words. And it shows that Peter is understood as something that relates to the mother. If you imagine in this time where a man could have more than one wife, it wouldn't make sense to call only one of his children the firstborn. Well, let me put it this way. It would make sense to call one child as firstborn, even though he might have multiple openers of the womb, right? Because if you have four wives, then you have four wombs. You can have four openers of the womb, but only one is your firstborn. There's a different relationship to the father and to the mother with this term and the way that the term works, because when you say opener of the womb, it has a very physiological referent, whereas you can only have one legal heir to everything or multiple, but you would have a firstborn who would get the lion's share, get the biggest portion of the inheritance, you can still have multiple openers of the womb. So I like that there is the specificity in the way that it relates and that you can't just jump and say opener of the womb to firstborn or back and forth. 
beginning with the original languages allows us to understand the entire world that this is coming from. We have to understand the context, the literary context for this to make sense. And to know that it relates to the mother, you can tell immediately when you read it in Greek because it's opener of the womb. Oh, are we talking about the father and the mother? That's not a question. <laughs> Only one of them has a womb. So we're talking about the one with the womb. That's the one we're talking about. It makes it very specific, whereas the English, when you say firstborn, it, it makes it more ambiguous. When you want to say, what is the best way to render this original language into English? You need to make sure that these nuances also make it through, either in the translation, or if not possible in the translation, then in the teaching of the text, where the teacher of the text knows the original language. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every Firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, that's the text that we use on this program. We don't use it because it's authoritative in any way. The Greek text of the New Testament, and please don't come at me with your arguments about manuscripts. They're very tiring. We take the text as authoritative in totality. We understand that there are many manuscripts that's no argument for its lack of authority. The translations are problematic. And in the case of the New American Standard Bible, it says every, and then, of course, in italics, firstborn male that opens the womb. Because they probably had a committee meeting and decided that English addressees of the text won't understand that opening the womb means firstborn. But it means much more than firstborn. You gave the example that Father Paul touched on with the consonantal root that links the expression opener of the womb to other terms in Hebrew, and he gave examples in Arabic, that through the mechanism of functionality light up the connective nervous tissue of the biblical text. So there is meaning that is interconnected. I'm going to use that word meaning, but the meaning has to come from the text through its connective tissue, which is connected technically through actual pieces that plug and play. You know that expression, plug and play? That's exactly how Hebrew functionality works. It's how Arabic functionality works. There's no way that that would come across here with the phrase, opener of the womb, or male that opens the womb, and there's no way it comes across with the term firstborn. Nor would anyone hearing this text in translation ever hear, understand, or receive the teaching of Scripture that the child is not functional in the same way that the rubble, the tohu wabohu of Genesis, the rubble of creation is not functional until God makes it functional. This is a critical point. It's not just that a woman is not a reference until her womb is opened and she becomes this very important reference as the one who has produced life, thus crossing into the divine domain and receiving this very impressive title, Mother. 
But it's also that once the womb is opened, then life is made functional. Just like the rubble in Genesis is made functional by God. There's a production that takes place. The womb is opened. Something is breached. This is clearly not platonic. You know how they talk about a platonic relationship where nothing happens? Something happens here. It's the opposite of a platonic relationship. It's the kind of relationship that parents hate because someone made a baby. (laughs) So really, it's a serious matter. So this idea of opening the womb, there is meaning associated with this, but it's a kind of meaning that comes from the text and is alien to our culture. If we look at verse 21, they circumcised Jesus and named him Jesus on the eighth day. But then in 22, she took him according to the law of Moses to Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of the Lord. This law of Moses and then the law of the Lord, the law is mentioned twice in two verses about why this happened, why she took Jesus to the temple. And it was to fulfill this commandment according to the law of Moses. But then it says, written in the law of the Lord. Okay, neither law of Moses nor the law of the Lord was mentioned when talking about circumcision or naming. But taking him to the temple, to Jerusalem specifically, was mentioned. And every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That comes from Exodus. And it's serendipitous that this is exactly what Father Paul is talking about in Tarazi Tuesdays, because we see the context of that phrase. So just like we were talking a moment ago, you have to understand the entire nervous tissue. There's a literary tie here that Luke is making explicitly. This is tied to the firstborn being saved among the Israelites and being killed among the Gentiles. And by the way, it says every male, it doesn't say every man. It's not just humans, it's male. And we know that from the Exodus story. Every male that comes from the womb, it belongs to the Lord because the Lord chose not to kill it, because the Lord decided to save it. When Father Paul talks about kadosh meaning to be set apart, it really is being set apart in the Passover because there's a separation. You can tell the difference between an Israelite child and a Gentile child among the firstborn, because among the Gentiles, they're dead, and among the Israelites, they're alive. The biggest difference you could possibly have. So if set apart, Kadosh, shows any distinction, in the Passover, it's the ultimate distinction. The root of this law of Moses is the law of the Lord that was carried out at the Passover. So just as in Matthew, we have references to the Passover as out of Egypt, I have called my son, which comes from Hosea, but harkens back to the Exodus. Here in Luke, we don't have that called out of Egypt, but we have that he is the firstborn. And according to that same law, the law of the Lord, he is set apart. He is declared holy, which is what we have here. And the way that it's translated is not sanctified. It is glithisite, which is called. So when the Lord calls it holy, whatever it is, 
whether living or not, it is thereby holy. And there's a, a long discussion in Father Paul's episode about Kadesh, the PL of the root Kadosh. You can listen there for more grammatical details. But for here, it suffices to the Greek to say that it is called holy, and that's enough for it to be called holy, for it to be set apart, for Mary to know that she must engage this law of Moses and take this son to Jerusalem. The interesting point that Father Paul made also about Kadesh and about consecration, holiness here in the Greek, it's agion. The interesting point he made was that it too is functional. And again, these concepts are interconnected. It's as though the writers of the New Testament and the writers of the Old Testament are the same writers. And I say it's as though with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek because it's one scripture. Honestly, this function of the firstborn being set aside as taboo or the sun and moon in Genesis being demoted and then put under the authority of Elohim, usurped in a way, and then wielded, or any of the authorities in the New Testament, the principalities being usurped and wielded. We've talked at length, for example, about the patrician, after you throw away Caesar. But you always have different authorities being usurped or set aside, as they are here in Genesis, the firstborn male, be it a human male. I really appreciate your point, Richard, that it's a male, not a man, not a human being. But you have, in the case of a human tribe, you have the firstborn male being set aside as taboo. But the point Father Paul made, which is really critical, is that being set aside or consecrated doesn't mean that you are personally holy. It means that you have a function. And just like a congressman can be removed from office, just like the priest after he serves the liturgy, when he takes off his vestments and you see him at the local coffee shop, is no longer set aside for a specific function. This consecration, in the way that we understand Kodesh, it's not something ontological or permanent. And in explaining that, it applies also here to the opener of the womb. So there's something going on here in this consecration about how everything now is being subjugated to the only one power, which is also a recurring theme in the text. And it's interesting to me, in the Gospel of Luke, after the birth of Jesus— that we are being reminded that this consecration is functional, that we are being reminded that there is only one who consecrates, because ultimately this is a story in which Jesus himself is dispensed with. And here's the kicker. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, when I hear this, and I'm cheating, I know, because we know how the story ends, but we should know how the story ends, because if we're hearing the story of the New Testament, 
We've already heard Matthew. We've already heard Mark. So we know what's going to happen to Jesus. And it's not cheating because this is our third time through on purpose, according to the authors. Now, it's the Lucan account, which is not the same as the Matthean account or the Markan account. But it's one story, three separate accounts, three stories, three different agendas, but all part of one scripture laid out with a specific syntax. Chapter 3 of the Brothers Karamazov does not have the same content as chapter 12. You cannot say, oh, I read chapter 3 of the Brothers Karamazov, so I don't need to read chapter 12. You can't say that. But you would never say that chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 12 of the Brothers Karamazov don't all fit together in one book, even though each chapter is unique and has its own content. So we are now hearing the third gospel. We know that Jesus is going to be sacrificed. So we are not being attentive if we hear verse 24 and we hear about a sacrifice in the temple and we don't say to ourselves, huh, that's a little uncomfortable. Exactly. I mean, we've got chapter one that came before this, you know, where's Mary's brother-in-law, whatever you want to call the husband of her cousin and that sort of thing. You know, we were talking about the temple for a long time. With the reference back to the temple and what was being spoken in the temple, it strikes me here, it doesn't say what is written in the law. It says what is said. It doesn't say what is read either. It says what is said in the law. I thought that was a particularly poignant way of putting the way that we're supposed to be interacting with the law. It is said, and we therefore hear. Now, again, we have law of the Lord. We had law of Moses in 22, law of the Lord in 23, law of the Lord in 24. Mary is literally going by the book. She's doing everything she's supposed to be doing. And this particular law, when you look at how it functions in Exodus, God decided he was going to kill all the firstborn. But you know, Israel, I'm going to make a deal. I'm not going to kill yours because I'm gracious. Now, you can dispute whether he should have done it in the first place. doesn't matter. He's being gracious to the Israelites. Every one that opens the womb of the mother is a gift, is a function of the grace where God decided not to kill the firstborn male. In this case, you offer a gift to the Lord as a way of recognizing that that firstborn is your gift the gift to you that was given because God decided just because of grace not to kill. And this is really a practical point because so often when we hear of tragedies happening, we say, oh, thank God it's not happening to me. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, God decided for this not to happen to me to the point where out of gratitude, 
I'll give whatever I need to because I understand that this is all grace anyway. You know, in America, we have this really big problem because we have this feeling that our children belong to us and we have to do this and we have to do that and all this kind of thing. When understanding that they are simply a gift from God, and I'm not trying to be a Hallmark card here. Oh, your children are a gift from the Lord. No, no, no. no they're a gift and you owe him something for that. You owe him something for that. And since we're talking about the firstborn, the ability of a mother to be, for a woman to stop being a virgin and to begin to be a mother, this is a gift from the Lord as well. And so in recognition of the ability for the woman to become a mother, she owes him something. And in this case, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons as it was written by the law of the Lord. So he says, here's what you do to thank me. Two turtle loves, two pigeons, whichever you happen to have. That is the ritual, formal recognition that this is a gift, that if I were a Gentile, I would not have had this, because simply the Lord decided, this is the decision he just made for me and my kin and that's how it is. And this is in contrast to Zechariah's trying to figure out what he was supposed to be doing. Here, Mary simply listened and acted according to the law of Moses slash law of the Lord. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.